Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Anita Po Show, a Bitcoin-only podcast. My guest today is Adam Beck, the inventor of Hashcash, a mining mechanism that was or has been used in Bitcoin mining as proof of work. His work is cited in the Bitcoin white paper and in the Tor white paper. Adam is a seasoned cryptographer with a PhD in computer science and distributed systems. As co-founder and CEO of Blockstream, he is building the infrastructure for the Internet of the Future. Before we start the interview, a short message about my book and from my sponsors. And then, enjoy! Learn Bitcoin will teach you the why and how to use Bitcoin. The masterful flow from one subject area to the next makes Bitcoin seem simple to explain. Michael Peterson, Bitcoin Beach, El Salvador. Order your copy now at learnbitcoin.link. That's learnbitcoin.link. Did you know that in the US alone, there's $15 billion worth of gift cards that don't get used every year? According to a recent poll by Bankrate, over 50% of American adults forget to use their gift cards, vouchers and store credits. We've all been there. We get a gift card for a special occasion, tuck it away in a drawer and totally forget it's there. It's time to do something with those gift cards. A good place to start is to trade them in for some crypto. On Paxful, you have nearly 400 ways to pay for your Bitcoin, including a wide variety of gift cards. Don't let those cards go to waste. Trade them today on Paxful. Go to anita.link slash Paxful to trade your cards for Bitcoin today. That's anita.link slash Paxful. Living on crypto is easier than you think with Bitrefill. Choose from over 4,000 gift cards and mobile top-up options from around the world. I used Bitrefill to top up my phone when I was visiting Zimbabwe. It was easy, worked like a charm, and I even earned sats back. Pay with Bitcoin, Lightning, Ethereum, Dash, Tether over Tron, and many more options. No account is necessary. Join the thousands of users around the world who are living on crypto today using Bitrefill. Join now at bitrefill.com and start earning sets back with each purchase. That's bitrefill.com. Hello, Adam. Adam Beck, welcome to the Anita Posh Show. I'm very honored to have you on. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, the second time uh, we did that live uh, in person in 2019 at the Understanding Bitcoin Conference in Malta. For people who are interested in that um, conversation, it's episode 12 um, of my podcast. And it's quite interesting because there we're talking about Hashcash, the cypherpunks, reclaiming privacy and things like that. So um, today I would like to talk a little bit more about recent developments. So um, you're the CEO and co-founder of Blockstream, which was founded in 2014 already. And recently you uh, secured another 210 million US dollars for funding. And uh, the, your company is now valued at 3.2 billion US dollars. Um, it seems to me that Blockstream always has had a holistic approach uh, in setting up uh, projects and products around Bitcoin. It's now around 15, I counted on your website, and they all seem to integrate with each other. And I'm in a way under the impression that you had this idea or vision maybe even earlier than 2014 when you founded uh, Blockstream with your co-founders. 
can you please tell us a little bit about this vision that you already had back then and um, which kind of big projects are still missing? Right. Well, I mean, the uh, building a miner is definitely one of the, uh, you know, the more recent things we're getting involved with as, uh, and we announced as part of the fundraising, the acquisition of Spondulis, an Israeli-founded uh, um, ASIC and mining manufacturing company of some years. So in terms of the sort of full-stack approach where we go down to the physical layer with uh, different hardware, uh, initially uh, hardware wallets, HSMs to sign blocks in the liquid network, and the low-level networking like Lightning, uh, satellite communications for Bitcoin data and the liquid network, that's like kind of network and then wallets and block explorers and services on top of that. And I guess liquid amp also a, a sort of middleware feature for liquid to support securities tokens. Um, so actually we had this kind of full stack concept already in the uh, initial pitch for investment in 2014, um, which is that we figured it would be useful and strategically important for each, you know, for, for what we were doing to, to build sidechains that the main Bitcoin network would be decentralized. And so, uh, one way to, to do that is to participate in mining yourself. So do some mining. So if, if, you know, if all uh, companies involved in Bitcoin, like exchanges and payment processors and individuals with some Bitcoin investments put maybe 1% or less as compared to the Bitcoin holding into mining activities, it would be um, much more decentralized and you would have a small stake in, you know, the decentralization and security of the network that your business or your savings uh, rely on. So that was our concept. And, you know, we, we already started uh, some mining activities in you know, 2015 and, you know, built out more hosting. Uh, we, we did some mining for ourselves and as, at the company level and also mining for uh, investors, so third parties, individuals, funds. So now we have um, some, but not all the customers are public because it's up to them if they want to disclose they're using our service, but Fidelity, digital asset, as their miners with us and Galaxy and some other funds that haven't uh, announced that. So, and, um, you know, also, of course, we want to bring things closer to users so users can participate. And that's where the uh, Blockstream mining note comes in. So it's a liquid security token. It gives you something similar to a fractional ownership of one of the enterprise contracts for mining. Um, and, you know, there are two thresholds. One is still quite large, which is the primary offering, which was uh, in March this year. And another one in June. And then the product started mining in July. Um, and the primary offering minimum investment was 200,000 euros. It's to do with European securities regulations because it's a Luxembourg securitization vehicle is the way the investor interfaces with it. But on the secondary market, so OTC, or on exchange, it then becomes possible to transfer uh, 0 0.01 
of a note. So down to 2000 euros at the initial price. And, you know, so midterm, there should be exchange listings as well. And exchanges may let you transfer or buy in smaller increments as well for, you know, because people will want to buy place orders for not precise amounts, but for sort of a particular dollar amount, let's say. So probably it will go below 0.01, but 0.01 is the regulatory kind of OTC transferability threshold. Um, so there's some sort of mixture between technology and regulations. Okay, so basically you want to enable people who don't have like 200,000 euros at hand to also be a part of Bitcoin mining uh, through buying shares. Do I understand that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a security interest and... I mean, it's not a share in Blockstream. It's a, it's more like a financial instrument. And so the behavior is that the performance of the machines is in a class. So all of the machines in the Blockstream mining note are, you know, if, if there's eventually some failure rate, the first 10% of failure rate we replace as part of the uh, kind of, you know, proposal. So we have extra machines and we replace them. If they fail, but if, if the failures fall below 10%, that is averaged between users. So, you know, if you do it yourself in, in a garage or in a, in a more direct hosting company where you own specific machines and you have three machines and one machine fails and it takes a month or two to repair, of course, that's, you know, that's not good for you. But if you're kind of part of a pool of investors like this with thousands and thousands of machines, then if one fails, it's less impact percentage wise. But it's a bit weird because I under, as I understand it, on the one hand, it centralizes Bitcoin mining because Blockstream is providing the mining and these nodes. And on the other hand, you say it's decentralizing the access to mining. How is this uh, like correlating? Yeah, so I mean, I guess decentralization has to start somewhere. So it's, you know, at least error. Our way of thinking is that we want to provide users with more kind of hands-on experiences. So, for example, you know, there's some more technology developments and new pool protocols. And as they come online, we'd like to allow owners of a Blockstream mining node token to run a full node and, you know, contribute transaction selection. So that would be a bit like... Um, you can run the node and, you know, legally, you know, contractually, you have to write to input transactions and select transactions where today the mining pools choose that. And, you know, in a hosting environment, um, that's about all you can do, right? And so it kind of takes part of the intelligence and gives it to the user, which is the decision, make the policy decision about which transactions go in a block. Um, and that's, that's one area that's, even more centralized today. There are only maybe 20 or so pools. It's difficult to start a new pool because um, it's kind of a protocol limitation that if you, as a pool, if you have too low of a hash rate, you don't offer good variance reduction. And that's why people use a pool. So there may be only space in the world for you know, 10, 20 mining pools at the moment. And so this, these new protocols, uh, which we did some of the R&D for, you know, some years ago is the open hash protocol. And the same idea is being developed now under the name better hash or stratum v2. So it's all the same concept, which is basically 
the miner should be able to run a full node, even if they're a small miner, and a pool shouldn't be deciding which transactions go in a block. Mm -hmm. I guess since you just mentioned uh, the combination of mining and nodes, um, I guess the new project called Greenlight, which is offering an easy access to a full node, uh, is also like uh, interacting with this idea? Yeah, so... I mean, and, and to complete the mining topic, of course, you know, if you if you have reasonable cost of power and you can run some mining in your garage, that's even better because now you have physical control of the machine. Otherwise, you only have kind of contractual uh, control of the machine, which is not as good, even though you have configurability for the node. So Greenlight is a kind of way to, um, it's a kind of light, lightning protocol model. So today there are mainly two types of uh, lightning wallet experience. One is hosted where you may have a smartphone wallet, but really all of the lightning channels are managed by a provider uh, online. Their nodes are online. You may even have fractional ownership of the balance in a channel. So maybe the channels are even shared between users. And the reason they do that is it, you know, it's much easier. It gives you a faster experience And it's easier for them to balance channels because they're shared. They can have, you know, fewer big channels kind of thing. Um, and the other model is, you know, you run a full node and you configure your smartphone wallet to connect to it. And then you have a more, you know, self-determination. And even running the lightning node has some bandwidth overhead for the gossip information. So if you do, and you can run a full node on a, on a phone with enough storage. So Blockstream, Uh, Chief Architect Lawrence Nahum has a kind of a personal project, um, which is a, a full node, like a, a Bitcoin core node that's been retargeted to Android. So you can run it on a, on a smartphone in pruned or, or full node and configure local host connection in a, in a lightning wallet that can do that. Um, and, you know, so you've got, you've got the gossip information as well. So it's the same kind of trade off and, so what we thought is there'd be an interesting um, possibility to offer a kind of SPV Lightning wallet or a, or a lighter Lightning um, protocol profile. And that's what Greenlight does. So it can host the Lightning node for you, but give you the keys for it. So that's set up, you generate the keys locally. It's a sort of server-assisted model. So the server has the gossip information, monitors the reliability of routes and the connectivity, you know, the, the discussion between the client and the sort of cloud hosted uh, lightning node is less bandwidth, you know, less interaction, less bandwidth than running a, a full lightning node on a smartphone because you don't receive the gossip information you're not probing the network. You're just, You know, deciding to send a transaction or being notified you received a transaction and your, your wallet is signing with the keys. So it gets most of the security of running your own node, but not latency and performance, but, um, you know, not quite as good privacy because the hosted node knows some things. And we also have the ability to kind of onboard and offboard it. So, you know, if you want to bring your channels move your channels from the cloud into a local node or move them from a local node into the cloud, you can migrate them. So it has a kind of onboarding path. So one one way to look at this is, you know, it's a fast way for somebody to set up. They can, you know, 
start a light, install a Lightning wallet and get going and learn some things and then later import their profile. Um, and the keys never left their device, unlike the fully hosted model. So is there also a possibility to consolidate uh, more Lightning wallets? I mean, I have several Lightning wallets on my smartphone, which are uh, non-custodial. Um, and could I like import it or onboard it into Greenlight, uh, consolidate them and then offboard it again on my own full node on my Raspberry Blitz? Um, I mean, the channels are still individual channels. Um, it does add a different possibility, which is for you to have multiple wallets uh, sharing the same node. I guess you could probably do that with some of the wallets that support uh, external node. So it has that that kind of possibility as well. Um, but to consolidate channels, I think you really need to, you know, close some and create some bigger ones or import them. There is not perfect transportability between different Lightning implementations as well. And it's, you know, it's a little complicated because their database is different and their sort of channel management information is slightly different, different strategies. So it's not trivial for them to, you know, import from Eclair to see Lightning or Lightning Labs and vice versa. Um, Okay, understand. Um, I would like to go back a little bit because uh, as the inventor of Hashcash, which has now is being used as proof of work mining method in Bitcoin, I mean, we all are like bored about this energy um, consumption debate on mainstream media. I know that, but I really would still like to understand uh, to also have better arguments myself. Um, what proof of work now really solves because it solves more problems than just creating new Bitcoin in a decentralized manner. Can you maybe explain what proof of work all, also does? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it has multiple functions in Bitcoin. Um, apart from being sort of like virtual gold mining to make a decentralized way for anybody to uh, mine coins. It also solves a, a difficult computer science problem about coordination in a distributed system. So in a way, it enables a permissionless network uh, it, with anonymous participants. Without that, the previous coordination protocols, the Byzantine General's problem being a kind of formal description of this coordination problem, required identified participants. And of course, in a permissionless network, there's nobody to assign identities. And so somebody that joins the network could, you know, pretend to have a million identities if there was some advantage. So the proof of work is sort of saying that you can, um, you know, have a tiebreaker influence as to which block of transactions gets processed first proportional to the amount of uh, CPU or, you know, ASIC hash power you have. So it solves that kind of race condition in a probabilistic way, which was a new innovation for Bitcoin, I think. Um, and then there's also the kind of uh, economic aspect that in, you know, in, in systems with federations or monetary policy boards, whether that is, you know, centralized cryptocurrencies uh, that, you know, have a collection of managers and the CEO um, 
or, or fiat currencies with monetary policy committees. Um, they have, you know, permissions. They can potentially undo transactions. With proof of work, there's a, an actual cost, an unavoidable cost to undoing something. And there's an economic incentive to be an honest participant in the network. Um, and so I think it might be, might be the case. I mean, economics and game theory are kind of, uh, you know, there's some mathematical component, but there's also some kind of human behavior component. So it seems to me that a, it may be a necessary requirement for a commodity money that there is a physical production cost with an investment, you know, with some kind of investment, electricity, hardware, gold mining equipment. Because if there is no actual cost and it's down to human policy, then there comes the usual political problems of lobbying people with close ties to the government and the so-called Cantillon effects where people with, you know, privileged relationships with power brokers in government can get cheaper money or get inflated, like newly created money faster before the inflation effects are felt by the rest of society. So as far as I understand, this would happen or happens or can happen in proof of stake systems. Is that right? Because people basically stake money and with that they vote on the transactions. Yeah. I mean, I think of proof of stake as more like shareholding in a company. You can buy more shares and get more votes. So it's, it's almost worse than political money or, or certainly related to it in the sense that there's a mechanical way for you to buy influence. Um, whereas, you know, there should be some friction or limits on buying influence in politics. Imperfect though it is. And in a company, there, there are rules, um, you know, like, uh, governance rules and so on, but you can ultimately stage a hostile takeover of a company. If you accumulate enough shares, you could force a public market company to go private or, you know, change something about the company strategy potentially. So proof of stake has that kind of thing going on. And it's not just theoretical. I mean, there have been, you know, uh, proof of stake systems that have been acquired by other companies and then, you know, some kind of power struggle between the users and the new owner um, and various kind of hacks that relate to sort of renting, sort of, uh, sort of flash borrowing to accumulate a lot of influence, things like that. So, so they're not entirely theoretical. They, they've also happened in the wild. Um, so it does, it does import, you know, many of the problems of the, kind of uh, corporate governance, public share companies, or uh, government-managed currencies. But many people also then say, um, why is there no cap like in the uh, mining difficulty? You know, because the more miners uh, start uh, mining, uh, the higher the mining difficulty goes. And as far as they understand, uh, more energy is used and wasted because it might not be, might not need to be this highly secure, you know, like the security grade could be a little lower and we could save some energy. What do you think about that argument? I mean, there are a few different ways to look at that. Um, I mean, one argument is, you know, people who don't value Bitcoin because, you know, it's, it's not philosophically for them. They like, you know, government controlled money. 
then they're not going to like anything about Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin uses power, if it uses servers, if people invest in it, it's all, you know, displeasing to them. So, it, it, you know, they're, they're not going to like anything about it, however it works. So um, and I think the other thing is that the, you know, the power used by Bitcoin is it, it tries to find the cheapest power for economical reasons. And that is often green power or stranded power. And, you know, there's a lot of unused uh, green power in the world. You know, the Quebec province of Canada has unused power that is unused hydropower, basically, that is two times more than the entire Bitcoin network. So, you know, that province could run the entire Bitcoin network and have spare capacity left over. And it's not being used at the moment. It's just, you know, it's excess capacity. So they just pour it downstream, basically. Um, and isn't it, you know, there are other areas in the world with lots of power. So I think that it's, you know, that's one aspect. The other aspect is a lot of power is actually wasted because some power generation methods, um, take a time delay to start and stop. And yet the industrial consumer uses very real time. And so the excess power has to go somewhere. If you can't turn it off very quickly, uh, you have to, you have to use it or it will break the equipment or, you know, just, you know, damage uh, pieces of the grid infrastructure. And so they end up paying uh, load balancing companies to negative energy rates to get rid of the power, which basically means, you know, heating the environment with, you know, multi megawatt heaters outside or something like that. So, you know, these kind of load balancing uses, Bitcoin can actually make the grid uh, more efficient. And I think if you, if you ultimately are able to make something more efficient by, you know, if somebody, if somebody, so we started a, a project with Square, uh, the payments company to make a solar farm where, uh, buying excess power using Bitcoin mining is part of the economic model. And we want to show and, you know, prove by publishing the, you know, the cost inputs and the profitability over its, you know, over some time that this, this actually works in practice, which is, you know, we've, we've certainly seen other solar projects approach us and use our a purchase, power purchase agreement from Blockstream to help them get project financing. And, you know, people look at things from a policy perspective, but in, out in the world, most things are governed by, um, economic viability. And so, you know, to achieve project financing, the investment bank or financier wants to be convinced that you can pay the money back. And so you need a business case. And if your business case starts with, well, we'll build the power and we're not sure if we can sell it all, that impacts your uh, viability and maybe you can't get financing. And another factor for new power projects is the grid management is quite bureaucratic and government influenced. So it can take, you know, a year or so to even get connected to the grid once you've built the infrastructure. And so Bitcoin can solve, you know, both of those problems, which is it can use excess power and it can use power off grid until you have a, a grid connection. So if that reduces the, the cost, then through competition from different power producers, it should result in you know, a more robust grid with more power and ultimately lower cost and greener power.
I guess that's where your block, Blockstream Energy project is coming in. Um, you're also building stuff here. But before, first, uh, two questions. Is it possible to easily uh, shut down and power on Bitcoin miners? Like, for instance, if there is excess energy, you turn it on. If there's none, you turn it off again. Yeah, you can, you, know, you can reduce their speed um, while leaving them on. And you can also power them off or put them on standby. I mean, like all you know, computers, they don't like to be completely power cycled. That that can shorten their life if you do it a lot. But there is a big difference between standby power consumption and you know their variable speed, so you can run them faster or slower. Interesting. And also, one question is: How fast does the internet have to be? in the area where you are mining so that you can send new uh, mined blocks um, or the solutions um, to the internet so that they get into the Bitcoin network? Well, I mean, low latency is good, but actually if you use, uh, you know, remote pool and you, you use a stratum proxy, so you make the mining farm look like a single big miner. So there's, you know, if, if you run each individual miner inside a, a containerized mini data center that will result in a lot of bandwidth and a lot of small work. But if you run a local proxy in it, then it just looks like a single large miner and you don't have to send so much data. And so we also have the ability to do the mining completely over satellite. So that, that means, you know, we, we have used that where there is internet to have a, a backup connection. So we've run mining farms on bi-directional satellite as a, as a failover um, plan. But you can also do it exclusively over it. Now you do have a little bit of latency, but if that enables you to, um, you know, operate a mining farm in somewhere that's very low cost because it's remote, that can make economic sense too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So uh, the Blockstream Energy Project, what is it? What are you building there? Yeah, so we at the uh, we have a mining farm in also in an area like a rural area near Atlanta in the US and that one is using this containerized model um, and so with with the mining product with the energy product we're using um, a low maintenance variant of that equipment and um, the the idea is you know the, the the proposal for the the buyer is that somebody with a new energy product or an existing energy um, provider can buy or lease this equipment and we will give them in exchange a power purchase agreement where we will buy, you know, as much or as little power within some parameters as they have spare. And, and, and the power might be intermittent too, you know, if it's solar or wind that could be subject to weather or day or night time. And, you know, usually if people are mining from scratch, it can be difficult to make profitability with intermittent power, you know, something that's only powered in the daytime because you have to recoup the equipment cost. But because we sell the, the power producer, the equipment, uh, we can pay a higher rate for the power because we, you know, we, we pay them in dollars and we keep the coins that are mined. So we're willing to pay a higher power rate, uh, if they're covering the minor depreciation. And from their perspective, they're selling the power, all the power they have, they sell it to the grid for industrial or residential uses when there's demand and when there's not demand, they sell it to us. So from their perspective, you know, 
they stole the power and they made and they they have um you know a standby power consumer so they can get to 100% utilization of what they have and that will make them profitable so whether or not they actually ran the miners at you know 50% or 90% it doesn't really concern them because they're looking at the overall business and you know selling being able to predictably sell all the power they have Mm-hmm. So basically, um, you're helping that, uh, excess energy is not lost, but used for Bitcoin mining. And you can do that in like decentralized places too. Right. I mean, if with, with some kinds of power, they have to pay people to get rid of the power. So us paying them instead is, is an interesting, attractive proposition for them. And other, other projects, you know, you just have to bypass it. <clears throat> so you, you know, you close the gates on a, on a hydro dam or you shut off. A wind farm or, you know, just disconnect it to the blade spin or, you know, switch off the solar. So, um, it's, it just makes things more profitable overall. And you touched Blockstream satellites before. Uh, I mean, it seems as if Blockstream is building all the infrastructure that, uh, you yourself use for your products and open it to the world, which is great. So, uh, the Blockstream satellites, Satellites, as far as I understand, are now working bidirectional already, or uh, is this only a like a a private functionality that you as Blockstream are using? Yeah. So the main uh, service you can get, so you can buy from our website something called the uh, Base Station. It's like a satellite base station. So it's a digital. It's a newer type of satellite dish, which is all digital. So you run it from power over Ethernet. Yeah, so it's much uh, more zero configuration. You just plug it in. There's one wire. It's power over internet that that powers it. The digital processing happens, you know, with accelerated hardware inside the dish itself. And those dishes are a little easier to point because they're phased array, kind of rectangular dish. So that's that's used for satellite and TV as well, but it's a more modern standard. So there's still a lot of analog equipment. And we, we can work on the analog dishes as well, but this is a kind of easier setup. And that equipment is uh, single direction, so it can receive only. And we're sending a lot of different things over the satellite in the, in the most recent update. It has uh, full block history, so you can sync a full node from scratch over a couple of weeks. Uh, reduces the, And you can reduce the time to sync if, if you have two dishes, if you're in an area with coverage from two different satellites. And it's broadcasting the transactions and blocks in real time. And more recently, also the lightning gossip data and updates to that. So you can uh, reduce the kind of internet bandwidth needed to run a lightning node. So, you know, you still need to need an internet connection. But if that's expensive where you are, or it's on a, you know, 2.5G mobile tether or something, you won't use a lot of bandwidth because you get the bulk from the satellite. And so that's, that's single directional. And, um, but we are using a kind of internal, uh, beta or bi-directional. So, you know, we, we would like to bring that to market. The, you know, the equipment is a bit more expensive. So we'll have to, uh, put together a, a price plan that, you know, covers, covers the equipment and the service and enables us to scale it. But it's quite interesting. You know, it's, um, it, it, it can be used for generic bi-directional internet and, uh, you know, Bitcoin paid global basis will be quite a new interesting service maybe to Bitcoin businesses or individuals. 
Yeah, and it's a great opportunity in remote places, as you said, uh, if internet is expensive or unreliable as a backup, um, which is, I mean, in most parts of the world, actually, we are just here in Europe or in the US, uh, we, we live like very comfy and we have all that and we always forget that the rest of the world doesn't have it yet. So um, I always hear also that Starlink, the satellite project by uh, not Tesla, but Elon Musk, um, will bring internet to all of the world. Um, do you know anything about that? Is this, um, do they maybe also want to send the Bitcoin blockchain down to earth or um, what, what's your um, view on this project? Yeah, well, I mean, improving global Internet access and connectivity is a, is a great thing. So, you know, as, as they roll it out, that will, I think, help. I think it's part of the kind of economic fabric of the world. You know, having high speed network access can improve economic conditions and financial opportunities to, you know, do certain types of services and work online and get access and learn, you know, use it as a learning resource as well. So that's great. I think there's some differences with the Blockstream satellite architecture from Starlink. So Starlink is uh, many thousands of lower four-bit satellites. And uh, it's also a subscriber, it's, it's a routed network. So it's not, I mean, it's broadcast from the individual microsatellite that you connect to and, it, and it's changing as they, you know, they're not stationary, right? But uh, it's not a global broadcast network. So, and, and it's, you know, you need a subscription. So you, you're going to provide, you know, you won't be able to use it anonymously, let's say, to receive things. And it's not uh, configured or set up to broadcast a shared stream globally where the uh, Bitcoin satellite is. So it's, Broadcasting, you know, the same data stream globally, and actually <clears throat> different error correction streams for the same data stream from satellites in overlapping areas, and that's so that if you can run two dishes in an overlap, you the error correction streams uh, are usable and provide more data. So it's not the same data twice; it's you know a different twist of the same data. So if you get both of them, you can uh, get get the history faster. Yeah, and that's true. If it's subscription based and it's not uh, that private, yeah. Mm. Um, so let's switch topics a little bit more. I mean, as a technologist and cryptographer, um, I guess you also spend some time on evaluating other blockchains or altcoins. Um, what are interesting technologies in other blockchains um, that might be implemented in Bitcoin in the future, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think that... There are, you know, three sources of innovation that, you know, may, may work its way toward Bitcoin. One is kind of Bitcoin related R&D. So, you know, people that are involved in Bitcoin on the R&D side are looking ahead at the next thing. And so, for example, the Schnorr signature was something that was talked about since 2013. And then we implemented a first version of it in uh, the Liquid Network, in Elements, the open source platform behind the Liquid Network. And so there is a kind of path from uh, R&D to Liquid as a, as a sidechain that can try experimental or new things earlier. And then later, you know, it, I think it helps people to get confidence and experience with something to improve it. 
or have confidence that it should work to see it used in a life system with life money. And so, you know, elements and liquid provide that. So that's, that's one path. And, you know, two or three different Bitcoin related things have been in liquid or elements before in Bitcoin. So that's the kind of Bitcoin R and D input. Another input is the uh, blue sky, you know, so academic uh, mathematical cryptographers and papers. And so you see some ideas coming out of that being adopted by cryptocurrency. I mean, one exciting area being this whole area of signatures of execution or different variants of snarks. So we actually, you know, collaborate with some of the academics and in, in some way maybe seeded some of that research because confidential transactions, which we use in liquid use as zero knowledge proofs and a very optimized zero knowledge proof. And then we collaborated with Dan Bernay and Benedict Burns and others on, uh, we posed the question to them, do you have any ideas of how to optimize this further? And what they came up with to optimize it further was you know, both a way to optimize it further and you know, a whole generic uh, signature of execution. So something more powerful and generic. Um, so we, we may, well, we have implemented and we'll probably bring into liquid some of the bulletproof technology to make the confidential transactions smaller. And then there's some crossover where, you know, some of the Bitcoin technology ends up in altcoins first. And so, you know, the bulletproofs have been used uh, and confidential transactions and Mimblewimble, um, this kind of anonymously published paper uses the building block inside confidential transactions for a slightly different purpose. And so, you know, all of those things were adopted by Monero, Bitcoin, and related altcoins, which is they use Mimblewimble, which is based on the range proof in confidential transactions. Um, they adopted bulletproofs, which we worked on. And, you know, that particular family of altcoins also has an interesting linkable ring signature mechanism, uh, which is some innovation in itself. Um, and coincidentally, I had uh, proposed a way to, on, on a Bitcoin talk forum, to reduce their ring signature size by 50%, just a kind of optimization. So they actually implemented that. And then there are also, you know, other altcoins that deploy or add innovations on top of um, academic things like, you know, snark based privacy coins, uh, like, and there are a few of those. And there were protocols for called zero cash and zero coin, which were different, one using snarks and one using conventional zero knowledge proofs. Uh, I think there are coins for both of those. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes when things get into you know, to get adopted by Bitcoin, they have to generally reach uh, more robust security um, sort of uh, confidence level because you know, certainly some of the altcoins that have used confidentiality, zero-knowledge proofs have, have actually had accidents where they narrowly avoided having uncontrolled inflation or in some cases actually, you know, a disclosure wasn't handled very well. One coin fixed it and another didn't. And there's, so now there's some inflation inside it. And I guess we don't know how much. So there can be risks in very new technology. So I think Bitcoin likes to use proven technology or uh, 
do more testing first. Mm. But uh, we also had an inflation bug in, I think, 2010 or 2013. Where's the difference here? Is it also because Bitcoin was basically a baby back then? Yeah, I mean, I think that bug was... Yeah, I mean, the, the defect rate has gone down in Bitcoin over time as some simple bugs were fixed early. And I think that was in that category. Uh, there was another kind of bug more recently that was, you know, fixed in Bitcoin without being uh, discovered in a wider space. And um, with, I think one difference for Bitcoin as is, is that because it's not encrypted, you know, it's it's not involving zero-knowledge proofs or privacy encrypted values, the inflation is discoverable. Um, like if, it's, if it were to happen, it would be visible and you'd know how much and you'd know which coins had it. Where I think with one of the Monero variants, it was exploited and probably the coins are indistinguishable. So, you know, you can you can fix it forwards, but there's not much you can do about it backwards. But are you actually also like researching or looking into other altcoins? Like I say, just some, a few names, yeah? Cardano, Tron, EOS or something like that. Um, what are the reasons that you're completely maybe uninterested in them? Um, well, I think that there's a distinction between the, you know, economic belief and the uh, technical uh, potential. So, and, and of course, one challenge is there are so many altcoins, you know, there are 10,000 of them, maybe a hundred with, you know, different potentially interesting things and people run out of uh, hours per day to read things. So that's, that's a problem. And a lot of it is, you know, it's trying to market itself. So you have to, first of all, discover the real story and not the marketing story, which takes effort. But certainly smart contracting is interesting. And there are some, you know, there are lots of clones of other chains, but there are also chains with different program models or, you know, more formal ways of doing things. So, you know, I think that that kind of area is interesting. And at Blockstream, we have an, another a smart contracting system called Simplicity which is based on formal logic. So that's actually something originally discussed on uh, Bitcoin IRC, I think in 2012 or thereabouts. And so we've been working on it, making it a reality for Bitcoin and Liquid. So we have uh, several developer releases in the last few years, which provide um, a branch of the Bitcoin code base and a Liquid code base with extended for Simplicity smart contracts. So I think the hope there is that It, it could be a way for Bitcoin to uh, do ossification while being self-extensible because simplicity is a way to, it's a very low level language and it's formal logic based. So at the, at the lowest level, there are nine kind of logical operators. And so it's, it's designed to make it uh, straightforward to make, to input it into a logic proof system and to make proofs about a program, you know, function behavior and, you know, to say, to make a predicate and say, well, the only way that coins in this contract can be spent is this condition and then be able to prove that. So to give an example, the 
the simplicity interpreter is is written in in its own language, which is formal proof compatible. And so we have a proof that the simplicity interpreter itself will correctly execute all simplicity programs, which is a quite strong uh, claim. Where most smart contracting systems in the you know in the cryptocurrency space in general don't have anything like that. And so that's something we're you know aiming to bring into Liquid, you know, within the next quarters. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, yeah. So you're using Liquid basically also a little bit as a test bed for for Bitcoin innovations. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you know you can think of Liquid as a uh, layer two. Well, more people are familiar with Lightning, but Liquid is another layer two. And one uh, if aspect of Lightning is Lightning is a way to make you know to improve some parts of Bitcoin with a with a security trade off. But ultimately, you know, Lightning can be faster and cheaper and more scalable, but it can't generally add features that are not available in the underlying chain because it's smart contracting is using Bitcoin opcodes. And ultimately, every Lightning transaction is a kind of, is a Bitcoin transaction that the game theory is set up that you don't have to send it to the chain. And with Liquid, because it's a sidechain layer two, you can actually add new features to the base layer. And so and then you have things like confidential transactions, um, some smart contracting extensions, and you know, midterm simplicity, um, which which gives a lot more flexibility for contracting, and a different security model with a federated HSM block signer model. So it gives faster transactions, confidential transactions, and multiple asset support so that you can you know, atomically transact dollars for Bitcoin and things like that. Thank you for that. Um, so do you see actually any, any reasons anymore, uh, that are really a danger for Bitcoin? I mean, now it has grown that much in the last 11, 12 years. Uh, I understand that big companies or billionaires who are holding a lot of private keys, they could be a problem for a consensus finding. And on the other hand, I would like to know what you think about big investment companies like BlackRock that are now investing in Bitcoin. I mean, the idea was to have no intermediaries and things like that. Um, is this gone or does this still, is the dream still alive? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important that a reasonable amount of Bitcoin is held by people with their own private keys, or if they don't have the private keys, at least, you know, some clear legal rights, because you saw a precursor of a potential problem with exchange, exchange rules about, you know, when, when there was the different forks proposed in Bitcoin, um, they, they put forward a draft proposal of how they would handle the fork. And some of those policies were quite risky or dangerous and maybe attackable, you know, like somebody could short something and then rent hash rate or something like that and make money. So they weren't that well thought out. And I think there's a risk if too much Bitcoin ends up in ETF like products or funds where the fund manager may feel they have a fiduciary responsibility to do something that the actual Bitcoin users wouldn't like. Um, so I think, you know, the conclusion of the last fork 
drama was that, yeah, which is a few years ago now, it was that basically the market prevailed. You know, it was dramatic, but ultimately, because the users own most of the coins and the miners can have opinions, but ultimately have to follow the market for economic reasons, the market prevailed. So, you know, if if too much, you know, if 75, 80, 90% is in ETFs, that could be a problem because the ETF managers might pull in one direction and then it will test, you know, uh, people's resolve to remove their coins from there to impose their own policy views, let's say. Um, so I think it'd be smoother if, you know, a good proportion is in the hands of actual users. And it, it doesn't mean they have to necessarily have um, full responsibility for key management because that, that could be risky to, to make a backup failure. But at least if it's um, kind of multi-sig arrangement, uh, then that works. I think that's something that Andreas Antonopoulos is calling a social backup. So where more people uh, can help you um, like secure your keys and also if you lose it, you still have a backup. Yeah, I mean, that's one way. And with um, the green wallet, we have a kind of time lock option. So today it's set up so that there's a server with a second signature, which is kind of security provider. And it won't co-sign the transaction unless you successfully pass a two-factor authentication. And the concept with the uh, multi-sig arrangement in green is that there's a two-factor authentication server. The coins are held in a two of two. You have one of the keys. The server has the other key. And the server is the security provider and won't co-sign unless you pass the two-factor authentication. Now, of course, that, that raises the risk that you lose the two-factor authentication or that the service provider is ordered to like not cooperate with you in signing your transaction or, or the service provider goes out of business. And so what we do to, you know, avoid that becoming a risk on both fronts is there's a timeout. So after, you know, three months, six months, nine months, if you lose that authentication, you can then the smart contract says you can switch and do it with a single SIG. So that's a way to kind of get, you know, security, a security service and still have control after a time. And you could use that same mechanism for different things, you know, so that, for example, you have control, but if you, if you lose your keys completely, then after a year, a custodian can, you know, move the coins and help you reestablish control. So. You can, you can have sort of hybrids. So I think it would be beneficial if ETF-like products had such a key arrangement uh, because it, it would mean that, you know, the user has to agree if there's a policy change, they have to, you know, transact uh, to move the coins. That's interesting solution. And do you see that coming? I mean, are more people talking about that? Also like the ETF managers, do they want that or not? Well, I think, you know, uh, people tend to do what's simplest and what's simplest is full custody. So, you know, that's partly why we're involved in the, uh, you know, creating new financial products and acquired the Admant hedge fund and issued the blockstream mining note, which is we can bring, uh, financial products to market, which are, you know, have, have the normal 
security interest than a Luxembourg securitization vehicle around them while still providing native blockchain, you know, making use of the native blockchain technology to preserve user control and involvement. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, it's you're, you're having a vision and you're uh, executing on it, which is really great. So um, guessing from your tweets, I think you're also a little bit a trader yourself. Um, I don't know what you're trading, but maybe you have a recommendation or something. If somebody like me or our listeners, let's say um, one owns one Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin or something like that. How can I actually make more of my Bitcoin um, through trading or other things? Um, I mean, just waiting and hodling is also a good strategy, um, but maybe there are other ways that I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that's where the uh, hodl meme came from, basically. The, you know, if you read the original post, this uh, fellow decided from experience that it was safer and better to just hold. Um, so I, th I think that, you know, if people are interested to trade for, you know, if they enjoy that or they want to try some strategies, I, I, my suggestion is to... Uh, you know, hold 90% of the coins in cold storage and then trade with 10% because then the worst that can happen is you can lose 10% of your coins. Um, because trading is, you know, it, it could be high risk and nobody really knows, uh, what, what's going to happen with the price. And certainly trading with leverage, which some platforms allow, greatly magnifies, uh, the risk, you know, so you could have the confidence that the price is going to go up with a leveraged trade, but be forced, um, you know, be liquidated anyway. So you could basically turn a good trade bad by being too leveraged. So leveraged products are dangerous. I think something that might be interesting for some people is the uh, long-term uh, Bitcoin options where you can sort of sell now uh, an option to buy the Bitcoin from you at, let's say, $100,000 by the end of 2021. And there's a, there's a market price for that. So it gives you some money now. And the downside is you give somebody else, if the price is over 100000 at the end of the year, you give somebody else the Bitcoin upside or part of the Bitcoin um, above that price. And so it's a little bit like getting paid now to put a limit order where it will automatically sell on the 31st of December if that price is right, is reached. So if you would be philosophically okay with selling some coins at that price, it's it's kind of an interesting trade. Um, so there are a few platforms offering that kind of thing, but you have to, of course, with any trading, you have typically some custody risk, so you have to evaluate that. There are also some yield products that produce, um, you know, a return on Bitcoin, but again, there's typically custody risk. Most of the Bitcoin yield products are uh, actually relending Bitcoin to hedge funds to do, you know, riskier things or are actually placing the Bitcoin in DeFi products that may have a failure risk. So there's no no reward without risk and holding is safe. That's uh, my view. Yeah, it's also my view. I mean, I don't trade anything because that's too much risk. And um, yeah, I just bet on the upside of Bitcoin and hold the keys. And that's 
it and I mean every every action, every trade induces like work also and in time where I could and also it um doxes myself. Like I mean those products I have to KYC and I think it's enough to be KYC like with one or two maybe Bitcoin exchanges if you want to buy and I mean the last uh last last month or something I tried BISC for the first time. Uh, which is a decentralized uh, Bitcoin peer-to-peer platform, and it worked great. So I think in the future we will see more decentralized exchanges, right? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a couple of things on Liquid as well because it has stable coins on it, and so there are kind of trustless swaps. So one interesting platform is um, SideSwap, which is an Android and iOS wallet where you can trade with other users Bitcoin for dollars. Um, you know, without without a sort of formal account setup, you can just put assets in there, place an offer, and it it will swap, and it's it's trustless, so there's no kind of custody risk from the third party. Um, I guess another type of investment some people get interested in is mining. So, now I mean, mining itself has you know technical risk, particularly like equipment failure risk, or if you you know, if your power rate is high, it could be a disadvantage. But, you know, we've been doing some mining at Blockstream for at the company level. And so we did some back testing to see how it behaved. And so I think, you know, generally it provides some downside protection, but it's still a Bitcoin correlated investment. And Historically, it looked to be providing about 60% of the upside participation. So on average, right? So if you are, I don't know, I mean, there are different, different reasons to buy it. It's kind of diversification, risk reduction, um, because Bitcoin itself is, is volatile, right? Without being, you know, completely out of Bitcoin. So some people put a, you know, small portion into mining, for example. Yeah, interesting. And there are more and more, uh, mining products coming up. Um, as you said yourself, like with your blockstream mining, um, you're, you're building miners now too, right? Right. Yeah. That's coming next year. So with the acquisition of uh, Spondulis, we are building, you know, a new mining, uh, line of products. Um, and, you know, one differentiator for that product is to have a more international um, supply chain and manufacturing. So a lot of the mining products, you know, the boards and the assembly is done in China, just uh, historically. And so, you know, we'd like, you know, our, part of our plan is to decentralize that a bit and do it in some other countries. Mm-hmm, great. Um, I have one question. What's that on the side on the board? What what did you calculate there? If you want to disclose? Oh uh, yeah, it's um, just some attempt to. So with confidential transactions and the range proofs, one of the kind of uh, bottlenecks to adoption is the size. So you know there've been attempts over the years to mathematically find more compact ways to make the range proof and. It's improved. You know, there are, there are different versions. So Greg Maxwell, uh, got to, I think, two and a half kilobytes for a 32 bit range proof. And then, uh, there's an optimization to get it down to two kilobytes. 
and the uh, bulletproofs brings it down to about 600 bytes. And so this is uh, my spare time to try and find a, a more compact way. Uh, one downside of the bulletproof approach is it doesn't, there are two versions of the range proof. One is um, Elkamel commitments and the other one is Pedersen commitments. And the Pedersen commitment, which is what we use in Liquid, has the risk that a quantum supercomputer very far in the future could create inflation, but your privacy would uh, you know, be protected for you know indefinitely with a mathematical guarantee and the other variant the Elgamal variant it's you know there's a mathematical you, you can see it due to something simple like simultaneous equations that it's not possible to create inflation mathematically but then the you know quantum supercomputer very far in the future would be able to remove the privacy so you'd be back to today's kind of privacy model so I'm interested to find a way that that has that no inflation guarantee that's more compact because the most compact versions on don't have that guarantee. So, and it's just, you know, if, if I can find a way to do it and get some peer review and other people are interested in this too, then maybe it's something that could be used in liquid or Bitcoin in the future to provide, you know, uh, a more compact transaction. You know, the Bitcoin block space is, is scarce. So, you know, having two kilobytes per transaction is quite expensive when a transaction is typically a few hundred kilobytes today, right? Yeah, exciting that you're still researching and innovating and hopefully inventing new stuff all the time. Uh, like, uh, and at the same time, you're the CEO of such a, a highly valued company. Um, well done, I have to say. Um, so let's close that um, with uh, a few on the future of Bitcoin and of Blockstream. Um, what um, are you going to use this 210 million US dollars for? And what is on the horizon for Blockstream in the next years? And um, as a closing word, maybe what's the, fusion, the vision for you uh, about Bitcoin and how far have we come in the first uh, 12 years? Yeah, I mean, in terms of use of capital, there are uh, lots of growth opportunities for us. Um, you know, liquid adoption is growing. We want to accelerate some of the technology development around there and enable all of the third party developers and startups building on that technology to you know, get all the features they need to uh, make interesting applications. And in the Mining space, we do some mining for ourselves, so we, we can grow that. And we also have to grow the hosting capability. So, you know, the megawatts of hosting capacity we have to support, uh, people that host with us and to grow the blockstream mining nodes. So the funding is used in a few different areas and also in the R and D and, and, you know, manufacturing for the miners and other use of capital. So. It's spread across different different product lines, and you know some people noticed that we we hadn't uh, done a fundraise for I think it's five years uh, since our A round, and that's partly because we were actually doing what MicroStrategy has popularized, which is we had Bitcoin on a balance sheet, you know, from 2014, and you know accumulated Bitcoin from mining too, so. You know, effectively, we got the benefit of equivalent of a round of investment from Bitcoin, a price appreciation 
but uh, you know, like like everybody, we uh, we prefer to hold Bitcoin and not sell it. So an investment round allows us to to expand and you know accumulate Bitcoin rather than spend Bitcoin. Um, so and what's coming for us for the future? So you know, some of those things are public. The the new miner, um, more financial products from the Blockstream Finance. So we're looking to reboot the Admin Capital Alpha Fund, which is uh, targeting a, a low-risk, medium-yield um, Bitcoin product, and some other products from that you know same entity, um, which would probably be both you know s- securities through Luxembourg Security Vehicle and uh, liquid tokens potentially with exchange listings. So it's a kind of formula we're, we're interested to repeat. And um, future for Bitcoin, I think, you know, there's quite a lot going on for Bitcoin in terms of R&D. So the, the Taproot and Schnorr is getting activated later this year. We hope to have it active in Liquid a, a little bit before that. So you know, Andrew Polster and team have been working on integrating Taproot into Liquid for upcoming soft fork and um, being able to do those kind of transactions in liquid. Um, and I think Sea Lightning actually has Schnorr and Taproot support already ahead, ready for when it's activated. So there are more soft forks uh, that people are in the Bitcoin ecosystem. You know, the people maintaining and doing R&D, sort of applied R&D on Bitcoin are working on um, some input hash things that make Lightning more efficient and uh, cross-input signature aggregation, which is a way to get a second benefit from Schnorr so that you can kind of make a combined signature from multiple coins, not just from a multi-sig. So that will make things a bit more space efficient for transactions. Um, so those things are things that people are discussing, but there are certainly you know, many other things which are maybe a bit further out. So there's some discussion about you know things like drive chains, uh, sort of peer-to-peer sidechain support uh, in in the Bitcoin protocol. It, it requires more opcodes or simple covenants. So there's some discussion of that as well to sort of uh, be a bit more flexible for enable some more gen- generality for Bitcoin smart contracting to enable some more use cases. But these things, I think, are still in the R&D phase. And, and for myself, I would like to see, you know, something like confidential transactions in Bitcoin, uh, you know, in some later years. And maybe some more Bitcoin layer twos focused on privacy, uh, you know, maybe a different scaling technology. So I think there's room for more specialized layer twos with uh, different, you know, privacy and scalability trade-offs. Oh, great. I mean... Many altcoin marketers or promoters always say Bitcoin is old technology, but I would say it's uh, quite the opposite of old technology. Um, so Adam, thanks for that. My last question is, there's a saying that is, uh, you can't change Bitcoin, but Bitcoin changes you. Uh, I'm not so sure of the first part in your case, because I think you influenced Bitcoin with, at least with Hashcash uh, and with other ideas a lot. Uh, but how has Bitcoin changed you privately or personally or your maybe your mindset or something like that in the last 12 years? 
Well, I guess I was always somebody interested in a kind of blend of technology and uh, social like societal cause. And so that was kind of a concept for the cypherpunks that they were interested to build and deploy privacy technology and ultimately electronic cash. So I think Bitcoin gave me, uh, and, and, you know, many, many thousands of people or probably millions of people at this point, a mission, basically, you know, it becomes all encompassing and uses all of your free time and work time. Um, but it's very, uh, empowering and fun and exciting. So I think that's, that's great. It's, uh, you know, uh, reason to work very hard and try and improve this and deploy technology that uh, helps Bitcoin adoption. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, uh, Adam, um, for this uh, very long interview. And it's very interesting. And yeah, uh, where can people find and follow your work? So on Twitter, I am at Adam3US and uh, Blockstream and Liquid Relate products are on blockstream.com. Yeah, thank you very much. And I've also seen you started your own podcast. So there's also a Blockstream podcast now. So you are a media company as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are mostly to um, interview sort of Blockstream technical people and product leads to uh, have a, a vehicle for explaining our products. We have a lot of products and a lot of R&D, and we wanted to make a a format where we can explain those things to a broad audience. Some of them are otherwise only explained at technical conferences or academic conferences and things like that. Mm, great idea. So thank you very much, Adam, and have a good day. Thank you. Wow, what a great interview that has been. I mean, to be able to talk to Adam Beck and to all the other builders in the Bitcoin space is quite interesting and something special. It's not every day that you have Adam Beck on the show. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And please remember to subscribe to my show at anita.link slash subscribe and to click the subscribe button here on YouTube. Until next week when it's time for the Anita Po Show. Bye bye.